said, and having prayed together already, let's take a look at the book of 2 Kings and chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, uh, there are Bibles in the racks in front of you. You can grab one of those. The page number is in the bulletin. Uh, we're in the middle of a sermon uh, series called Troublesome Prophets, uh, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And we're in 2 Kings. I'm going to skip over the first seven verses of 2 Kings 4. Um, what's really happening in 2 Kings 4 is uh, the authors of, of Kings are, are amplifying the life and ministry of Elijah in Elisha. Um, and and some, some commentators say, well, the, there's, there's so much of this going on that Elijah did something, so then Elisha does it. They argue that basically one of them is made up. Like, like, you know, maybe Elisha did something and so they said, well, Elijah's got to do that thing too. And so they kind of invented it and stuck it back. And I have a very common sense answer to that. How many of you have ever had a conversation with somebody? You told them a story and they said, oh, that happened to me too. Oh, I, I remember a similar thing happened to me. So, so the idea that just because the same things or similar things happen to two people in the Bible does not mean one of them's made up. It, it, it's just common sense. Human experience replicates. We, we have pretty much the same experiences over and over and over again. Um, and the commonality of our experiences is one of the things that lets us know um, that it's okay to be who we are. Because we're not the only ones that go through this experience. These things happen. So anyway, that's aside. Let's take a look at 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to read uh, a, a passage here in chapter 4, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 8. Because there's two places where um, this particular person is involved. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. One, dot, one day, Elisha went on to Shunem. Uh, Shunem is a, a small village. It's been found. It's been excavated. The excavations ended in 2010. Um, and uh, there, it's uh, on the northern rim of the Jezreel Valley in Israel. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a, woman, a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and he rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. Shunammite just means from Shunam. All right. Um, and when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, so he's talking through Gehazi, his servant, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? Uh, she answered, I dwell among his own, my own people. Now that's a great answer. But, but knowing what we know about Elijah and Elisha and their relationship to the king, would you want him asking the king for something for you? I mean, this is a guy causing famines. He's telling people they're going to get defeated in war. He says, he's, you know, do you want me to ask the king something? No, please don't. Please don't ask the king for me. Just leave it alone. That's not actually what she means when she says, I dwell among my own people. She says, I have everything I need. That's, it's a figure of speech for, I've got everything I need. And he said, then what is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son. And her husband is old. And he said, call her. And when he could called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace his son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. 
But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, O my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother, because that's what dads do when kids complain. Take it to mom. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. So, so this is a small child, right? Can still sit in mom's lap, right? So, so we're talking. He's maybe four or five years old, maybe. Okay, um, he's old enough to speak. He's old enough. You say, well, why was he going wandering out into the fields alone? Well, if you know anything about pre-modern society, kids, as soon as they can waddle and move, they're left. You know, go go to dad. Um, and, uh, and, then, and she went up and laid him, verse 21, on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may go quickly to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new, mo- new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. That's the second time she said that. Right? And when she came to the, mountain, of the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. If that sounds familiar, Jesus does a lot of the things that Elisha does. A woman coming and grabbing the hem of his garment, grabbing his feet because she needs something. People trying to push people coming to him away. Does that sound familiar, the story of Jesus? Um, and, uh, and so verse 29, then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not, de- did I not say, do not deceive me? And he said, Elisha said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply. Lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he, Elisha, arose and followed her. And Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. And when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. He went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hand on, hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. The kid had not heard of the coronavirus. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Now over to chapter 8, real quick. Um, There's a a famine going on in chapter 8, and this woman appears again. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Elisha said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn where you can, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. 
So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. So she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman, here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. Now, isn't it fascinating? Isn't it a little fascinating? And this is, this is just something to ruminate upon. But isn't it fascinating that if the child had not died, the woman would not have gotten her land back? Now, that's an interesting notion. It is because of the resurrection of the child that when the woman comes back from the famine, the king is impressed enough that he provides back to her the land. So that's an interesting thing. Some of you may chew on that and process that. But I want to talk about this woman um, and her significance. One of the things that you've, you've probably noticed about me, if you have not noticed yet, is when I see a strong female character in the Bible, I like to really study that character out. Because there are some really strong women in the Bible that have been understudied um, because everybody thinks the Bible is about men. Um, but there are a lot of women that are formidable women, and this woman is one of them. When we first meet her in chapter 4, the scriptures say in verse 8, one day Elisha went to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived. The Hebrew word is gedola, um, and what it means, she is a formidable woman. She is a great woman, all right? And great in the sense of power, and uh, it's pretty obvious when you read it, whatever she says, her husband does, all right? Um, she, she is one of those women. Now, this woman owns a lot of land, and it's hers. She owns it. Now, you'd say, you say, how is that possible? Well, Believe it or not, the law in Numbers 26 and, and 36, the law of, the, of God, the Torah, is very clear that a woman can inherit the lands of her father. All right? So just, she, it's not like medieval Europe where a woman had to rush off and marry a strong man so that he could take care of her. Women were able to inherit land and care for it and take, it, take care of it in, in ancient Israel. And they do it quite often, actually. Um, and these women were not treated... There's a lot, a lot of times people talk about how misogynistic, how anti-woman the law of the Bible is. And, it, and women actually had more rights in Israel than they did anywhere else in the ancient Near East. They were not treated as property. Um, they, they tended to be, they actually tended to be quite formidable. Now there's law about taking care of a woman that's been um, defiled, right? Because there's a certain dishonor that's associated with that. But in most areas, women not only could be equals to men, but in many cases, as in this case, um, considerably more formidable than, than her husband. Um, so we know from the digs in Shunem, uh, the town is called Salom now. It's, it's a, uh, a Palestinian town, um, a very small town. We know that in Iron Age 2A, which is when this would have occurred, this is basically just a big family compound. 
Um, so this is just basically the home of an extended family. But it's a significant home. Uh, we know from the passage that there are reapers, which means that they're growing grains, cereal grains, barley or emmer wheat or something like that um, in their fields, which is still grown in the northern Jezreel Valley today. The southern Jezreel Valley is where there are vineyards. Uh, this woman lived about five miles away from the vineyard of Naboth. Um, if you remember the story about Ahab and Naboth. Um, and in many ways, this story is a mirror image of the Naboth story, where in the Naboth story, the king takes away the land of man, he kills, Jezebel kills Naboth so that Ahab can have the vineyard. Here we have the king actually of somebody being raised from the dead so that the king will grant land back to somebody. So there's a, there's a, a flip side going on with that. Um, there's there's a, a tremendous complexity um, and beauty to the, the symmetry of the way that these stories are being written. So she's a great woman. She's a wealthy woman. And here's an interesting thing about this woman. Um, she abides by Torah, the law of the stranger. From Abel Molea, which is where Elisha's house is, to Mount Carmel is about 40 miles walk. Now, you, you look at 40 miles of walk as a modern human being and go, time to get a car. Too expensive for Uber, too long to walk. All right, but in Elijah, Elisha's time, this was very common. People would walk these kind of distances. And, and, and a pre-modern man can walk about 20 miles on, in a good day. All right? What else are you going to do? There's no smartphones. There's no books to carry. Um, you're just walking along, singing with your buddy. Um, and that's what they do. Well, well uh, Jezreel... All right, the military city of Ahab that he built is about halfway. But if you're Elisha, you don't stop in a town sponsored by the king. About two miles north of Jezreel is uh, Salem or Shunem, um, this village. And what appears to be happening is that Elisha is walking from his house to Mount Carmel once a month. So he's making this 40-mile trip, and then he makes the trip back. And then he makes the 40-mile trip, and he makes the trip back. And he's camping on the land owned by this woman with his servant Gehazi. Gehazi. And she sees him, and she says, Well, the law, Abraham um, welcomed strangers into his home when he saw them. And, and God blessed him because of it. And there's a parallel between Elisha and the Shunammite woman and the man of God and uh, Sarah, in Genesis, there's there's something being played on there as well. Um, and he says he says she says, well, let's have him in for dinner. And her husband, being um, married to a formidable formidable woman, says, okay. And so he starts eating there on a regular basis. We don't know how long this takes place. I think it's probably one season, um, a couple of months. She sees him, and then she says, you know what we should do? We should build a room on our roof. Uh, for him to stay in when he comes by. This is the origin of the term prophet's chamber. Um, it's this idea of, you know, he, she builds this place for him that he can stay. And so now Elisha is coming along. And when he comes along, there appears to have been an outside staircase. He would just walk up the stairs, go to his um, Airbnb, and, and then check out at the end and, and go home. Um, and then he says to her, and then he asks her this question. He says, um, he says, well, what can I do for you? Can I talk to the king or the commander of the armies? Um, and she says, you know, she says, no, I dwell with my people. And the Gehazi knows the story, and he says she has no son. Now, because of this, a lot of commentators have said that she's barren. 
Um, there's actually a very good Hebrew phrase for a woman that's not able to have a child, and there's also a very good Hebrew phrase for no son, um, as in she doesn't, own, she doesn't have a son. The phrasing, the way that the Hebrew text here is phrased, is that she has no son in the sense that she had a son, but does not have one now. Now, if you've been following the context of this, the reign of Ahab and Ahaziah and Jehoram, the kings of Israel, has been a reign characterized by lots and lots of warfare. Well, who fights wars? Sons. So although I wouldn't take a bullet for it, I'm willing to bet that this woman had a son, a young teenage son, who served in the armies of the Umrid kings and died. And she's lost her son. So she's content to dwell with where she is because she's not going to ask for God to replace what she treasured above all things. And she seems to adopt Elisha as her son because they build onto their house for him. Well, the only reason that you would build onto your house for another man is if he is your son. So she's adopted Elisha. She thinks he is just the niftiest thing in the world. I mean, he's walking around. He's got this weird fur coat he carries like an umbrella. Um, he's got this servant Gehazi. He can do all kinds of crazy stuff like make water work and scare the king. And, and she's like, well, this is, he's a holy man of God. I'm going to take care of him. She seems to be a holy person herself. And she, she draws him in home. And she honors him in the law of the stranger, the Torah, the story of Abraham that he takes care for strangers. And she, she's, she goes, not only honors him according to the law, but goes above and beyond the law and builds a home for him and pseudo-adopts him and says, whenever you're coming along from your house to Mount Carmel, you just stop here for the night. And she has suffered the loss. She, she among all people, and I actually think this is one of the primary reasons that she's in the text, she, among all people, has suffered the real cost of the wars and the corruption of Ahab and Ahaziah and Jehoram because she's lost her son. She would have known Naboth who lived just five miles south of her. She would have seen the king take his land. She would have had chariots, Aramean chariots and, and Israelite chariots riding across her fields to go to war at Ramoth-Gilead and Aphek and all the places that they fight in First and Second Kings. She knows the cost of war better than anybody else. She's probably old enough to have been born during the reign of Omrid, Ahab's father and the current king's grandfather, and have seen the degradation of the kingdom all along the way. She knows the real cost. And she wants nothing. I think it's significant. I think we, we need to notice this about her. When Elisha offers to do something for her, to speak for the king, to the king for her, which ironically is exactly what Gehazi does in chapter 8. He speaks to the king for her. She wants nothing. But when God provides for her, she expects that God, she is willing to fight for what God has given to her. So she doesn't come to Elisha saying, give me something in return for what I've done. I'm going to take care of you, give me something in return. She makes no offer. 
She stands outside of his room when they're talking. When Elisha wants to talk to her, she actually stands in the doorway rather than step into the room. This woman, I mean, is there anything more intimidating than somebody standing in the doorway talking to you? All right? And he's willing to, he, he, he says, this time next year, this season next year, the spring of next year, you're going to have a child, you're going to embrace it. And she says, don't you lie to me. This is one of the, another reason that I think that she had a son who was gone, who was dead. She is not willing to go through this. Now she has the child, the child grows up, and then the child dies. Now how many of us at that point in our lives would sink into misery and, and pity? Not know how to deal with it. You know, It's a tough thing to deal with, the loss of a child you didn't ask for in the first place. And there has been this tremendous blessing. And what does she do? She says, I'm going to go talk to the man. Because if God promised this child to me, God's going to keep his promise. So she says to her husband, who runs in and says, yes, dear. Notice that he sent somebody else to bring the kid to him, to her. But when she calls him, he comes. And he comes and he says, he says, what do you want? She says, I want the donkey and I want a servant to drive the donkey. And he goes, why? It's not the new moon. That was the wrong question. The answer was, yes, dear. All right. She gets that donkey and she tells the servant, she says, you don't stop for anything. You get me to Carmel. And when Gehazi comes out to greet her, she just keeps riding right past him. And the image I have, Gehazi comes out and he says, Elisha wants to know what you want so you don't have to ride up the mountain. And, and she just rides right past him. She goes, all is well. She just keeps riding. Gehazi runs past. This guy, if you actually keep track of how much this guy is running around in this story, Gehazi runs down the mountain to greet her, runs back up to talk to Elisha, then runs to Shunem, which is a 20 miles, then has to run back, all the time carrying Elijah's staff. I mean, he, he like, what is going on with this guy? All right, so, so he's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. She was content without a son, but once God gave her a son, she expected the Lord to make good. And here's the interesting thing about Elisha. Elisha expects the Lord to make good too. Because God didn't say, I'm going to give her a son and then take that son away. You know, you get that whole story with Abraham and Isaac, where God says to Isaac, sacrifice your son, and God never intends for him to sacrifice his son. He's just testing him. He's pushing him. And this whole thing is going on with this woman. And she, so she runs off, right? And she, she got the, 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 the camel, and, or the, yeah, the camel, the donkey, and she rides out, and Elisha sends Gehazi over with the staff to touch the baby. But then she says, I'm not leaving you, Elisha. I don't trust your servant to do it. I want you to do it. God said through you I'd have a son. That means you are the one that God's going to use to heal, her, heal him. And so Elisha says, okay. She's a formidable woman. Elisha gets up and he says, all right, let's go. And he walks alongside her donkey or runs alongside her donkey again, carrying a whole fur coat on his back. You know, now he doesn't have his servant to do it because the guy's... Anyway, he's, he is, he's headed back. They travel the whole 20 miles from Mount Carmel. Elisha says, okay, here we are. She's down on the bottom. She goes to check on her husband, make sure that he's okay, you know, probably to drop the donkey off. Elisha stomps up the stairs, goes in the room, closes the door, lays out over the kid, he prays to the Lord. He says, what's going on? He lays out over the kid, and the kid warms up. Now, if I'm Elisha, at that moment I go, whoa. All right, so this is actually going to work. 
Now, remember we talked about Elisha. Elisha is a man of absolute conviction. So if God gave this woman this child, then God is going to keep this child with her. This is not, this is not any, any kind of like, you know, like, and not to demean parenthood in general, but this isn't like, you know, us who just have kids. This was a miraculous birth. This was an extraordinary thing. This was a restoration of something that she had lost. And she simply expected, not selfishly, but she believed that if the Lord promised to do something, He was going to do something. She did the work of asking. She did not sit in the house and go, well, God gives and God takes away. But rather she says, this is what God provided for me. I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to work. I'm going to ask. I'm going to go. I'm going to do I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to do everything within my power to request that God honor the promise that he made. And her son is restored to her. And there's this moment, this beautiful moment I think at the end here uh, at chapter 4. We're going to get to 8 real quick. He called her and when she came to him he said, "Pick up your son." And she came and fell at his feet. So he says to her, he says, now take your son. This is all done. And instead she falls at his feet, bowing to the ground. And what is she doing? She is not praising Elisha. She is praising God for what he has done. That he has been true to his promise to her that she would have a son. Now the follow-on to that is that Elisha then goes to her and says there's going to be a famine for seven years. And this seems to happen just about the same time. Because Jehoram only reigns for 12 years. So if you figure this kid is old enough to talk to his dad when he dies, there's a little bit of time there where Elisha is going back and forth, then she has the kid, the kid's old enough to go talk to his dad, then the kid dies and the kid is reborn, and then in chapter er, re- resurrected. And then in chapter 8, Elisha says there's going to be a famine for seven years. We don't have a whole lot of wiggle room here in the storyline. All right. So she goes to Philistia. She, again, notice that Elisha doesn't go to her husband. He goes to her, and he says, you get out of here, there's going to be a famine. She goes, all right, boys, let's go. Husband throws his pack on, all the servants throw their packs on, son throws his pack on, and they go to the land of Philistia. They go down to the, the, what is today the, the, uh, the, the, um, the Gaza Strip. They live there for seven years, and when they come back, their land has been taken over. Now, for some of us, we would just kind of lay back and go, man, that stinks. Now I've got to go find another piece of land. But for her, because this land, remember this is a mirror image, a reverse image of Naboth. For her, that land being taken from her is a violation of her inheritance, and so she's going to fight for it. What God had given to her, she's going to fight for. And so she marches right down to Samaria to talk to the king. Now imagine the coincidence the Gehazi is there talking to the king because the king said, tell me all the things that Elisha has done. Right? I don't know why he has that question. He just wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, I need to know what Elisha's been doing. Now, there's an interesting reason why he needs to know this, by the way. Elisha, Elisha spends a lot of time in the, the city of Damascus and hanging out with the Arameans, the Syrians. Elisha is technically, I mentioned this last week, he's a kind of a traitor 
to the Israelites because he's going to anoint the king of Aram. He's going to anoint the person that's going to eventually kill Jehoram as well, the Yehu, his successor. And so uh, he's got some questions about what Elisha is doing because Elisha isn't around. And Elisha's probably in Aram. He's probably hanging out with the Syrians. Um, in fact, the next verse, he's, uh, he's actually anointing the guy that's going to kill the king of Syria. Um, so she, but Gehazi is, so Jehoram says, tell me the stories of Elisha. What's Elisha been up to? Well, you know, there was this time a few years ago when he raised a kid from the dead. Speaking of which, this is the lady. And now I just picture that, I mean, Gehazi's got some experience with this woman, but you know how a formidable woman opens a room, enters a room. She, she comes in, I, I just don't think she's meekly coming to the king. She's standing outside going, don't make me sing that song that Jasmine sang. Right? I mean, she, she, is, she is a strong female. Some of you know the reference I'm making to the remake of Aladdin where they're trying to carry her out of the throne room and she just breaks out into this anthem of, of uh, female strength. Right? So um, it wasn't in the cartoon, um, which was better. But anyway, uh, the, the, not because that song wasn't in it, um, just because Robin Williams was in it. And... And she comes to the door, and Gehazi says, this is actually the woman. And Yehoram appoints somebody. He says, you, you, you take care of this woman. You restore what she lost. She doesn't even have to fight, but she's willing to fight. She's willing to fight for what she has. She's willing to fight for both God's divine provision of her son and for God's divine inheritance of her land. And God coordinates all the events of her life to take care of her. Now, all of that is fuel for you. So what, what I'd like you to do in the next couple of minutes, as we've looked at the scriptures and we've explored this, this narrative, what, what big ideas come out of this narrative and text for you? What, what does it motivate you to do? What's an application that you've drawn? What's a scriptural parallel? What's, what's a, some, uh, something that in Scripture that's been sparked in your mind that you can draw from? And I know this is weird to invite you into the sermon. It's kind of very Quaker-esque. The Quakers have this thing about they read the Scriptures and then everybody kind of discusses it, um, which is tough to do with a large group of people. Um, but what, what does this mean for you? And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about it. What, 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 what do you draw out of this passage of Scripture? I mean, just say it, stand up and say it. doesn't have to be any specific group of people. You don't have to say it right, wrong, or indifferent. Awesome. I know Lucy had something in the back, I think. She disappeared on me again. Did you have something, Lucy? Is Israel still fighting for its land? Yeah? That's a good question. Yeah? 
Mm. That's a great, yeah. Anybody else? Lori? Mm. Mm. Yeah? That's an excellent, excellent point. There's no requirement for her, and she had no expectation from it, right? Don't wear a mask, by the way. It doesn't help. <laughs> and the dentists don't have enough masks now. Doc. Absolutely. Anybody else? Ray? I think if God promises it, then we, we are not entitled to demand of Him that He honor His, His promises, but to expect Him to honor His promises and to come prayer with expectation. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. If we're, not, if we're not willing to put words to what we believe about God, you know, then, then do we really believe? Are we really expecting if we don't actually ask him to do what he's promised to do to take care of us? Yeah. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. She knew to worship before she jumped into. I'm sure that after worshiping, it was like, yeah. But there's no Hebrew word for yeah. Eric. Good parallels. This is, a, this is a very rich moment that I think, honestly, a lot of times we read over and we go, that was a cool story. But there's an awful lot going on in the interplay of Scripture and how this is, this is written. It's a very carefully constructed text. So, um, anyone else? We're at 11.25, so we're, a little, we're about 10 minutes over our normal stop time, so I don't want to extend things because, you know, some of us get hungry because we don't eat breakfast. That's actually a way that I make sure I don't go over time is by not eating on Sunday morning. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this. Um, if I eat on Sunday morning, I'll go forever. But if I didn't, I'm like, boy, it's lunchtime. Let's roll. But my body thinks it's 10.30, so I haven't encountered that yet. So, um, all right. Let's, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. I think, I think it's great every once in a while for us to, rather than me saying, this is the application you should take away, to hear the things that different people bring because... People coming from, uh, you know, as, as, as hard as I might try, I'm not going to read this story from a female perspective. So hearing the voices of women saying, you know, this is what I kind of draw out from this. And, and because I'm a pastor, I read it from a pastor point of view. So to hear, to hear different perspectives on it is, ver- is vital for our growth as we study the scriptures. And this is kind of a shameless plug, but this is one of the great reasons for Bible studies during the week. Because that's really your opportunity to really have a conversation about Scripture. As conversational as our tone on Sunday morning might be during the sermon, we really can't have a discussion here. But you can discuss the Scriptures in a small group Bible study. So, shameless plug, but you should be, you should be willing to be a part of that because it really is a great way to enrich your study of Scripture. So let's close with a word of prayer and, uh, and then I'll benedict you and we'll get out of here. All right? Father, thank you for the miracles of your word. I think that if we we had um, just facts and information and theses and and theology in the Bible um, and and there was nothing supernatural, Lord, I, I don't know how people live without reading the Bible and seeing your incredible provision beyond the bounds of our reason, um, beyond the rhythms of our lives, stretching our faith. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation. Lord, we thank you for the difficult passages to read. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to really get into the text and study it and see how you are at work in the lives of people that really aren't that different from us. Have the same struggles, the same difficulties, the same joys, the same celebrations. Lord, may we glorify you in all that we do and say as we go from this place. Um, As Nicole sang, in our response to who you are, so will we. So will we do that. We pray this in Jesus' name.